If you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn in them with me this morning to the book of Psalms, to Psalm 110. If you don't have a Bible, uh, the passage will appear uh, in a minute on the screen behind me and you can follow along. But if you do have a Bible or a phone or an iPad, I'd encourage you to use it. We're going to turn to a couple different passages this morning as we open up the scriptures together, not just uh, staying in Psalm 110. As we've been reminded this morning through the songs that we've sung, through the palms that you've waved, through the scripture reading that you heard, today is Palm Sunday. It is the beginning of Passion Week. These events that will unfold throughout the week that will end with Jesus on a cross and then soon after with an empty tomb. So it might be curious to you why as we begin what is often called in the church calendar Holy Week, why we turn back, why we reach way back into time, hundreds of years before Jesus even came to earth and set our hearts here on Psalm 110. Well, I hope to show you why. I hope to show you that this is indeed a good place for our hearts to be this morning. You see, for generations, God's people, the nation of Israel, they eagerly longed for the fulfillment of God's promises. A land, a nation, a Messiah. And so for generations upon generations, the servants of God, guided by the Holy Spirit, would speak of these promises to come, and yet they would speak of them in shadowy form. Well, today as we open up Psalm 110, we see one such place, one such shadow, and yet this is a shadow that is much more vivid than so many other shadows that we find in the Old Testament. Written centuries before Jesus would come to earth in the flesh, David, the king of Israel, declares to the people of God, both then and now, who this Jesus will be. The significance of his person and his work. And brothers and sisters, who David speaks of this morning in Psalm 110 is who we need. As David anticipated the coming Messiah, we anticipate the Messiah who has come and who is coming again. And so my hope this morning is that these promises, these simple truths from Psalm 110 might encourage us as we see God's working in human history to accomplish His purposes. Pray that our hearts would be stirred to worship as we see again who our Jesus is. So listen, and I invite you to stand if you're able for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 110 A psalm of David, listen as I read. This is God's holy word. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. 
The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of His wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, He will lift up His head. Amen. This is the Word of the Lord. Royalty. I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear that word royalty. There's been a lot of talk of royalty in popular culture as of late. This is a psalm about royalty. It's a psalm about kingship. But it's not the drama-filled silliness of the royalty that we know. This is a psalm about the strength and the nobility of the royalty of years past and of the royalty that is, that is yet to come. But this is no ordinary royal psalm. That's the category that it fits in in regards to what kind of psalm. But this is no ordinary royal psalm, one that speaks of the praises of an earthly king. No, David speaks without giving a name entirely of a reign that is still to come. Now whether, it was, now whether David was king at the time he wrote this or not, we, we don't know. But Psalm 110 speaks of a reign to come. It's actually the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Jesus and the apostles quote it directly or indirectly some 27 times. And they did that because in Jewish circles, Psalm 110 was authoritative evidence for who Jesus was. See, Jesus and the apostles drawing on the sacred Scriptures, they could show how the Scriptures spoke of this man, this Jesus who had come to them. So as we sit here this morning, in contrast to what the world, in contrast to what modern scholars would like to say, the Jesus that we worship, Jesus of Nazareth, is not some myth. He's not some creation of desperate New Testament writers in the first century. No, he's the one that has been long spoken of. And this means that we, as we sit here as 21st century Christians, we have a great advantage in understanding this psalm. More so than the people of Israel, hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, as they sang this psalm as part of their worship. Why do we have the advantage? Because we have the entirety of the Scriptures. 
We have the most important uh, principle of interpretation that Scripture's best interpreter is Scripture itself, and so we are armed with passage after passage to understand what David is saying here. And so I want to jump around for just a couple minutes and meditate on this psalm and, and explain it to you and hopefully grip your hearts with the one whom it speaks of this morning. Three truths that tell us who Jesus is and The first one is where we'll spend most of our time this morning in Psalm 110 as we walk through some of these phrases, and it's simply this. Jesus is the king that you want. Jesus is the king that you want. Now perhaps that statement in and of itself kind of rubs you the wrong way this morning. I don't want a king. Right? Perhaps in our most autonomous and and arrogant moments, we scoff at the idea that we would need someone to rule over us. But I stand before you this morning to contend that deep down, you do want a king. Because you, as a creature, were created to want a king to need a king. We are people who who love kings. Our, Our culture is fascinated. Our culture is littered with royalty, with those who we can crown and adore and hold court together. Specifically, I think we long for good kings. Kings who are noble and worthy heroes who can unite and bring peace and safety under their reign. Rulers who rule with with righteousness and and wisdom, right? That's what the movies give us. That's what the movies portray for us. And all we have is politicians. And some of them we wanted. Some of them we didn't want. Brothers and sisters, lift your eyes above that drama to Jesus, the King that you want. So let's unpack this psalm for just a few minutes that we might see him. David begins this psalm by giving us a quote. And it's a pretty amazing quote. It's a quote from a divine conversation between two persons of the Trinity. We gather this morning to worship the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And here in this psalm, the Lord says to my Lord, the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, is talking to the Lord. Yahweh is speaking to Adonai. You see, David by the Holy Spirit, gives us a peek behind the curtain as the Father, God the Father, speaks to the Son. And what does He say? He says, sit. Sit at my right hand. Now in the ancient Near East, to sit at the right hand of someone distinguished was a place of honor, but greater than that, to sit at the right hand of a ruler meant that you were part of that rule. 
And this image is repeated over and over again in the New Testament to drive home the point that this is what Jesus came to do. This is what the triumphal entry into Jerusalem prefigured. Hebrews chapter one, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, what did he do? He sat at the right hand of the majesty on high. And Hebrews 10 says it again, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time until his enemies shall be made the footstool for his feet. The risen Jesus, the king that you want, rules right now at the right hand of God the Father. The Father says something else. It's what the writer to the Hebrews just quoted. He gives a promise, until I make your enemies your footstool. What an image. I've always loved that image. Think about that image every time you sit in your lounge chair and kick your feet up on that ottoman as you hold God's word. Think about the word made flesh, exalted at God's right hand, putting his enemies under his feet. What an image of disgrace and submission and dominance, right? In Joshua chapter 10, when the five Amorite kings were caught, before they were executed, Joshua instructed the chiefs of his army to put their feet on their necks. And it's an image that we need to be reminded of. It's an image that we see here in Psalm 110 that Jesus reigns in the midst of his enemies. Verse two, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. You see, this is no ordinary rule. Who can rule, really rule, when your enemies are still around? But David points to the nature of the rule of the coming Messiah, the nature of the rule of Jesus. Namely, that this is a spiritual rule. A spiritual rule that is awaiting the last surrender. And so we read in 2 Corinthians 10, though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Now that doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't rule in the nitty gritty of life. He does. But it does mean that his rule doesn't come about through policy, but through prayer. Right? And this is what so many of the first century Jews failed to see as Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and as they praised him with the palms in fulfillment of prophecy and the praise of many. 
No doubt many of them thought and hoped what Brett said earlier, that he had come to kick Rome's behind. To restore the Jewish nation to their rightful place of privilege as Yahweh's people. But Jesus' kingship was different. It's better. It's far more reaching. Far more significant. Because his kingdom wasn't geographically bound in time and place in the Roman Empire. It encompasses the whole world. For all time, his kingship doesn't merely react to the decisions of his enemies and to those around him. No, his kingship actually rules the hearts of men. And his kingship isn't some term rule. Four years and then you're done. No, his kingship is an everlasting one. You see, this small event, some 2,000 years ago, as Jesus rode in to Jerusalem, half a world away, this had, that had cosmic application. As all of this teaching from Psalm 110 flowed through the image of now Jesus rolling in to Jerusalem, but not as they expected Him to. But it also has a very personal one. I mean, if this is true, if Jesus is the King that we want, then we need to submit to Him. If Jesus is the King that rules all other kings, we better give Him our allegiance. And yet some of you here this morning have never done that. Some of you watching may be refusing to do that. Others here say that you are the kings, but other than your attendance here this morning and keeping your nose a bit clean throughout the week, your life seems to reflect that you want nothing to do with your king. And most of us, and I'm including myself in this assessment, most of us, we just forget that he's reigning. We fret. We try to fix and we we try to control and we obsess and we obsess and we obsess some more. Instead of resting and adoring in the kingship of Jesus. He calls all of us this morning to acknowledge who He is. Jesus is the King that you want. He rules. He wants to rule you. And friends, His, his commands are not burdensome. His yoke is easy. And His burden is light. And His way is perfect. Jesus is the king you want. Well, as we continue to walk through the text, let's move on to the second truth that I think we see here. And that is that Jesus is the priest that you need. Not only is Jesus the king you want, but Jesus is the priest that you need. 
Well, if I didn't offend you with the first point, I probably did with this point. I don't need a priest. After all, the priest, the work of the priest in ancient Israel was one of blood and sacrifice, blood and sacrifice and the atoning of sins before a holy God. I don't want anything of that, maybe some of you are saying. Jesus is the priest you need. The same Jesus that is riding into Jerusalem to the adoration of the crowds will just In just days, he will take this work upon himself, not just becoming the priest, but becoming the sacrifice himself. If a glimpse of of a divine conversation between father and son wasn't enough, we now get a quote from David of a divine oath, a statement made by the unchanging God that will stand forever. He has sworn to it. What does he say? You are a priest, verse 4, forever after the order of Melchizedek. The question which no doubt comes to our mind is, who is Melchizedek? And why is he so important? We first learn about this guy way back in the book of Genesis, Genesis 14. We don't hear his name again in the Old Testament until this psalm. And after this psalm, we don't hear again of Melchizedek until the book of Hebrews, where he is mentioned eight times. And so what do we make of this mystery man, Melchizedek? Well, simply this. Melchizedek is a shadow of of Christ. He's a picture of Jesus. That's his purpose, and that's all the scriptures want us to know about him. That's all we need to know about him. He took his place in the annals of Jewish history in such a way in order that Christ could be seen. How you ask? Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me for just a moment, to Hebrews chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, you can just listen. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 and 10. Listen to what the writer to the Hebrews says about this mystery man that David speaks of in Psalm 110. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to to him, Abraham apportioned the tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man who was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils, And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. Skipping down to verse 9, one might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, what is, what is there to notice in that Hebrews passage, in Hebrews chapter 7? Let me give you a couple things. First of all, the fact 
that Melchizedek jumps in and out of history and we're told nothing of his background points us to the one who is eternal, to the Lord Jesus Christ. What else? The fact that Melchizedek was superior to the Levitical line of priests, this line that God had chosen for the priestly function, points us to the priest that trumps them all in function and in duration, the Lord Jesus. And then finally, feeding into these first two points of Psalm 110, the fact that Melchizedek was a priest and a king points to the Lord Jesus. Because the union of priest and king, the functions of priest and king in ancient Israel was not allowed. In fact, Uzziah, king of Judah, tried to offer incense in one time, one time in place of the priest and was inflicted with leprosy by the Lord for doing so. See, all these things point us to the incomparable God-man Jesus. And therefore, as Hebrews 6 says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's why this matters. You have an anchor for your soul. Standing before a holy God would consume you, but you have an advocate before the Father. Brothers and sisters, this is the heart of the Gospel. That Jesus is the priest that you need. It's what we celebrate this morning. It's the heart of Passion Week. It is our hope, the reason for our love. And yes, it's a stumbling block. We want to contribute. We don't want to be told that we are desperately in need. We like to think that we're good enough. Or we can be good enough. And David reminds us, the Holy Spirit reminds us that Jesus is the priest that we need. And so the writer of the Hebrews says, encourage one another in this, all the more as you see the day approaching. And what is that day? Well, that's the last thing we see about Jesus in Psalm 110. It's this, Jesus is the judge that you must face. This Jesus of Nazareth who rode into Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago, who died on a bloody Roman cross, who rose again from the dead, will come again and you must face Him. The last few verses of the psalm, we essentially move from the book of Hebrews speaking of Melchizedek and the priestly work of Jesus of the coming Messiah to the book of Revelation. Right? It's this picture of final warfare, of final judgment 
against those who have rebelled against the anointed one. Verse 6, it's not a pretty verse. And the conquest is an effortless conquest. He will shatter those who rebel against his rule. And when it's all over, when everything is said and done, he will take time to refresh himself after the battle. And so the crux of this psalm, the crux of the gospel, is are you on his side? You either fall to your knees in worship of the king you want, the priest you need, and the judge you will face, or you will fall to your knees in submission. This Palm Sunday, this Holy Week, indeed, all our lives, God's Word calls you to acknowledge His Son. The Palms remind us to acknowledge His reign, to submit to His rule, to rest in His kingdom. The cross behind me, the cross that we look to this Holy Week, reminds us to depend on His priesthood and hold fast to the confession of that hope and the empty tomb that we long to celebrate in a week's time points us and reminds us to anticipate and to long for and to prepare for that justice that is coming. Justice that will make all things new. Praise be to Jesus, the Son of David. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this this poem, this psalm penned by your servant David, guided by the Holy Spirit, and painting for us a beautiful picture of the one who was to come, the one who has come, the one who sits now at your right hand, ruling and reigning and interceding on behalf of His people and soon returning to make all things right and to judge those who ignore who He is. Oh Father, would You take this Word, would You plant it deep in the hearts and the minds of those who hear it. Would You bring about faith? Would You bring about repentance? Would You bring about renewal? Would You deepen our love for You as we meditate upon the depth of Your love for us? Oh Father, this I pray Through the matchless name of Jesus, amen.